So let me go ahead and pray, and then we can dive into our, our sermon time this morning. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together to worship you and really to embody what uh, we just were singing about. We ask that you speak to us. We want to hear from you. We want to have a deeper intimacy in our walk with Christ. So as we turn our attention to uh, the book of Second Timothy this morning, as we turn our attention to developing uh, strengthened faith in our spiritual lives, just guide us and be with us every step of the way. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. In 2018, one of the largest hurricanes in decades hit the Western Caribbean and the southern coast of Florida. The name of this hurricane was Hurricane Michael, and by the time it made landfall in Florida, it was a Category 5 hurricane. Now, I know, I know that uh, up in Wisconsin, we don't give much thought to hurricanes. It's been a while since we've had one up here. But if you're down in Florida, you are very concerned when a hurricane is going to be sweeping through. Now, I want us to pause and think about the size and scope of this storm. So if you were to go through this storm down in Florida when it made landfall, just consider the size of Hurricane Michael. At its widest part, it was over 350 miles in diameter. Absolutely massive for one story. That would stretch from Rhinelander to Chicago, right? So that's pretty sizable. Not only that, it's immensely powerful. It has winds that are touching down at over 160 miles an hour. When we get 40 mile an hour winds, I'm praying that the ceiling holds up up here on the hill, right? You're thinking it's going to collapse on you. Yet, these are four times as powerful. It's not only immensely large and immensely powerful, it's also immensely destructive. Hurricane Michael caused $25 billion worth of damage. Now, I know that we throw around billions a lot these days, but sometimes we forget how sizable a number a billion dollars really is. With $25 billion, you can employ 50,000 teachers for 10 years. That's a lot of money. So Hurricane Michael was absolutely a massive and destructive storm. And it really causes us to wonder, what if any structure could survive the power of such a storm? Now, believe it or not, there is a beach in Florida called Mexico Beach, okay? And in Mexico Beach, most all of the beachfront properties were obliterated by Hurricane Michael. But there was one building that survived. They had a weird name for it. It was called the Sand Palace. Don't know if I would call it that. But the Sand Palace, as you can see, uniquely survived the storm. What made the Sand Palace so different? Well, from start to finish, the Sand Palace had been constructed in such a way that it would be resilient against even the fiercest storm. Here's some of the things that they did. The builders, when they were constructing the sand palace, were trying to make it uh, able to withstand winds of up to 250 miles an hour, double what the building code of Florida requires. There was no wood in the entire construction of the facility. It's all poured concrete that's reinforced with rebar and steel. And then lastly, as you saw, it was up on a piling foundation high above the sand below. So if there was a flood surge, it wouldn't be flooded. And those pilings go deep into the ground and are embedded in concrete. From start to finish, they designed a building that would be resilient and unshakable regardless of what storms might come. As we think about that this morning, I think it gives us a really good image of our spiritual lives. 
We want to construct spiritual lives that will be able to withstand any storm that we will face. Because the reality is, we live in a fallen world where there will be different spiritual storms that we encounter. And if we don't have a resilient, fortified spiritual life, those storms will rock us and at worst, uh, implode our faith altogether. What are some of the storms that we might one day face? Well, there might be the storm of painful circumstances. It's pretty easy to worship God and to praise him when things are going well. It's not so easy when it feels like everything in our life is going terribly. Will we continue to follow the Lord even in the trials? Maybe it's the storm of spiritual warfare. Peter's very clear. We have a spiritual enemy who's seeking to deconstruct our faith. And if we aren't vigilant, he'll use any tool in his arsenal to devour us. Maybe it's the storm of broken relationships. We not only commit sin in a broken world, other people will sin against us. What do we do when even people who claim the name of Christ do things that are hurtful to us? Maybe it's the storm of unrealized expectations. The older I get, the more I understand that we have a lot of expectations that we don't even know we have. And those are revealed when something in our life happens that maybe we're not excited about. God takes us a different path than we were hoping, and then we're, we're frustrated, we're discouraged, or realize, or our expectations haven't been realized. How do we respond in those moments? Maybe it's the storm of our own sinful hearts. Attacks against our faith are not just going to be external, they're also internal as well. If we aren't combating those sinful desires, uh, then we will find ourselves quickly succumbing to them. So the battles are not only without, they're also within. So there are a lot of storms in this world attempting to wipe out our faith. However, we want to be just like the sand palace. We want to have a resilient foundation that will withstand even the fiercest of storms. But how can we do that? How can we have that kind of resilient faith? Well, this morning, we're going to talk about having that right foundation for resilient faith. And we're going to look at the opening verses of 2 Timothy to do it. So as you turn to 2 Timothy, let me give you a little bit of background information to this book of the Bible for those that are unfamiliar. So the book of 2 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote many letters in the New Testament. 2 Timothy would be the last letter that he ever wrote. And Paul wrote the letter of 2 Timothy from the pit of a prison in the city of Rome. Here's what the entrance to that prison looks like. If you were to go 30 feet, two levels down, this is what the bottom looks like. This was probably the pit prison that Paul penned this letter from. So Paul's writing this letter while he's in prison and he's awaiting trial before the deranged emperor Nero. Nero was no friend of Christians. In fact, in the 60s, he uh, had such an intense persecution that led to the martyrdom of many Christ followers. So Paul's been in prison many times before, but he recognizes this is different. He's not getting out of prison this time. When he stands before Nero, he will be found guilty, executed, and martyred for his faith. So the book of 2 Timothy is Paul's last will and testaments to his beloved son, Timothy, in the faith. And he recognizes that Timothy's getting ready to walk through a spiritual storm. Watching your discipler and mentor be imprisoned, abandoned, beaten, and executed will shake your faith. And Paul is saying, don't be shaken. 
Don't be scared. Don't be frightened because God is still faithful even when the worst things happen. So he is trying to help Timothy know how to navigate the storms that are getting ready to enter into his life. So with that overview in mind, let's look at our first seven verses of this passage. Here's what Paul says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. And I remember your tears. I long, as I remember your tears, I long to see you, Timothy, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan and to flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us his spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. As we look at these verses, I think Paul is giving Timothy five ways that he can begin to fortify his faith in Jesus Christ. So that's really our big idea this morning. We're going to be looking at how to fortify our faith. Fortify your faith. If we're going to be resilient in our pursuit of Jesus, we have to be ready for the storms of life that are going to overtake us. We all know when the storms of life are going to hit, and we all know how severe the storms are going to be, which is why we need to fortify our faith right here and right now. And we're going to look at five ways we can begin to do that. The first one is this, and it comes from verse 3. Paul says, if you want to have a fortified faith, you need to keep a clear conscience. You need to keep a clear conscience. Now, we know that terminology because we use it often. I want to clear my conscience. I want to have a clean conscience. But what does it actually mean? What does it mean to maintain a clear conscience theologically? Well, let's begin by uh, discussing what it absolutely can't mean. Paul is not saying that by keeping a clear conscience, he is perfect and never sins. Paul was a pretty cool apostle. He wasn't Jesus, okay? Paul was not perfect. Regardless of how sanctified he was, he still succumbed to sin at times. He still gave in to temptation. So having a clear conscience, a piece of it is trying not to sin and avoiding sin, absolutely. But a bigger piece of it is how do I respond when sin is exposed in my life? Do I hide it? Do I rename it? Do I suppress it? Do I disguise it? Or when sin is exposed, do I deal with it, confess it, and repent of it? A big part of having a clear conscience is rightly responding when sin is exposed in our lives. Going to Jesus each and every time we sin for forgiveness and for cleansing from that sin in our life. Think of it this way. During the summer months, one of my favorite things to do is to go out and take care of our yard and landscaping. I'm an 80-year-old trapped in a 28-year-old's body. That's just one of the many ways that I'm an old person, right? So I love to take care of our landscape. And one of the things that taking care of your landscape requires is to go out regularly and to weed your landscape. You don't have to cultivate weeds. They will just come regardless of whether you plant them or not. No one ever goes out to the nursery and says, you know, what weeds are really doing well this season I can purchase? No one does that. Weeds will come whether you plant them or not. Good fruit has to be cultivated. Weeds will just pop up, okay? Our hearts are like a garden. They're like a garden bed. We're trying to cultivate the right kind of fruit. 
But the reality is weeds always pop up and those weeds are sin. This side of eternity, we will never be weed free. No matter how much weed guard we put down, no matter how, times, how many times we mulch it, there will be weeds that pop up because this side of eternity, our sanctification will never be complete. We will never be glorified until we enter into the presence of Jesus. So there will always be weeds that we need to regularly uproot. But that's what Paul is getting after here. What do we do when we see the weeds of sin taking root in our hearts? Because the moment we stop resisting them, the moment we stop pulling the weeds out, you, you know what happens, weeds take over. They do. Weeds will quickly take over and choke out the life of everything else until they are running uncontrolled. So Paul is reminding us that we need to ensure that the weeds of our heart are not taking over. So how are we doing with keeping a clear conscience? How do we respond when sin is exposed in our life? whether that's a public exposure, whether that's the Holy Spirit convicting us, whether that's someone speaking truth into our hearts, how do we respond? Are we better at hiding sin or fighting sin? Are we uprooting the weeds or are we allowing the weeds to overtake us? Because the longer we put off being honest and open and going to Jesus for cleansing, the more we begin to mute the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. One of the rules of the Holy Spirit in our life is to convict the world of sin. But the problem is if we keep ignoring his convicting voice, slowly but surely we'll just turn down the, vo the volume dial until we don't hear him whatsoever. And we never want that to be a metaphor for our spiritual lives. So the first way that we fortify our faith is by making sure that we have a clear conscience. But moving on to verse 4, Paul gives us a second source of spiritual fortification. Paul refers to the tears that Timothy shed at their last goodbye and how he longs to see Timothy again. Paul's giving us a glimpse of his relational life and he does that all throughout his letters. One of the things that we see time and time again is that Paul refuses to pursue Christ in isolation. It's always done in the context of, of community. Paul understands that he needs other people to faithfully follow Jesus. And that brings us to our second idea. If we're going to fortify our faith, we need to develop strong friendships. We need to develop strong friendships, right? We need to develop strong friendships. The reality is uh, Christian living is a team sport by definition. All throughout the New Testament, there are countless one another commands. You can't one another by yourself. It just doesn't work, right? One another, the only way to do that is to live that out in the context of community. We need each other. We cannot be resilient in our faith in Jesus if we don't have the encouragement, accountability, and friendship of other strong Christ followers. Think about this way. Traveling to Northern California to see Redwood National Park has always been on my bucket list. There's just something surreal about the thought of seeing these massive trees. I haven't seen them, but I really want to see it. How many of you have been to Redwood National Forest? Yeah. Man, you guys are awesome. Good for you. Okay. Some of these tallest trees are 350 feet tall, one and a half Dudley Towers. It's a tall tree. 24 feet in di diameter, 1.5 million pounds, one tree. That's a big tree. And I just, I just can't get my mind around. I want to see that tree, right? But you think about a tree that's 350 feet tall, 1.5 million pounds. You think of the storms that hit Northern California. How deep do you think those roots have to go to keep a tree like that upright? 
1.5 million pounds, 350 feet tall. I want you to think about for a moment, get a number in your head. How deep do those roots have to be? Do you have your number? Yeah? This is the interactive part of the service. You have your number? Okay, good. How many of you sit over 20 feet deep? How many of you are liars? No, I'm just kidding. How many of you sit over 50 feet deep? 100 feet deep? Multiple hundreds of feet deep? Okay, here's the answer. Ready for the answer? Six to 10 feet deep. That's the depth of the roots. Six feet's me, 10 feet would be me with Jeff Hines standing on my shoulders. Six to 10 feet deep, okay? So think about why. Think about why they're able to do this. You'll never see a redwood growing by itself. They only grow in groves. The reason it's only six to 10 feet deep, when they grow, their roots grow together and interlock. And literally the trees hold each other up. They don't have to have deep roots because they have roots that are holding each other up. They are stronger because they grow together. That is one of the best pictures I have ever found for the Christian life. We are stronger when we grow together. I don't care if you think your spiritual roots are 100 feet deep. If they're not interlocked in Christian community, they will not be strong enough to survive the storms of life. We need strong friendships. So how are we doing with developing strong friendships in our life? Because strong friendships require, I'm sure a host of things, but these are three things that God kind of led me to when I was thinking through this text. Three things that are necessary for strong friendships. You need initiative, you need vulnerability, and you need consistency. First, you need initiative, okay? I know a lot of people right now that are lonely. We live in a culture that's isolated, where people feel neglected and forgotten. That is just true all around the board. We live in an isolated community. But here's the thing. I think a lot of us are waiting on other people to befriend us. We think, man, I wish someone asked me out to coffee. When was the last time you asked someone out to coffee? I wish a couple had us over for dinner. How many couples have you had over to dinner? I wish this mom would invite me over for a mom, a mom-kid date. I was the last person you had over for a mom-kid date. We want everybody else to be the friend that we wished we had, but we never take the initiative. Part of it is taking initiative. Be the friend that you wished you had, and quickly you'll find the friendships you desire. So initiative. Second, vulnerability. Vulnerability. I'm not just talking about spending quantity of time with other people. I'm talking about quality time. Being willing to be vulnerable and go deep. Vulnerability, think about that word. Vulnerability is the idea of opening yourself up to where you have the potential of being hurt. You're letting your guard down. You're letting down your protection. You're inviting people in. Vulnerability is scary, especially for Wisconsinites, okay? In the Midwest, we don't like vulnerability. As vulnerable as it gets is talking about our fears of Aaron Rodgers not performing well next year. Like that's, that's being vulnerable. I'm, I, that's not the vulnerability we're talking about, right? We're moving past the minutia of everyday life and we're talking about the things that are actually going on in our life. And, and vulnerability is scary, but it's also the path to growth. And then third is consistency. Third is consistency. Paul and Timothy haven't seen each other for months. This is a long distance friendship in a world where there was no such thing. But even in their long distance friendship, they pray for one another, they're writing one another, they're engaging one another. They are being consistent because they value this friendship. How many of us are missing out 
on deep and strong friendships because we're just not consistent. Life is busy. We have a thousand things competing for our attention. And sometimes if we aren't careful, we allow the busyness of life to choke out our deepest friendships. And what a terrible trade that is. We need consistency in those relationships. So that's our our second way of pursuing uh, a fortified faith. We need to keep a clear conscience. We need to develop strong friendships. But third, look at verse five. Paul tells us that we also need to take ownership of our faith. You need to own your faith if you're going to have a resilient, fortified faith. Look at what Paul says. He says, I am reminded, Timothy, as I think about you, of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, then your mother Eunice, and now dwells in you also. So Paul is celebrating the godly influence of Timothy's family that has helped form and mold his faith. However, Paul says, I'm encouraged because I know that this isn't just something that was true of your grandma and your mother. Now I'm confident it's true of you as well. And notice what Paul's getting at here. He says, I commend that you grew up in a Christian family. I commend the witness of your grandmother and mother. However, I'm over the moon excited because I know now that you have taken ownership of your faith and it's sincere and real in your heart as well. So here's what Paul is getting after. You can't inherit your parents' faith. You can't inherit a relationship with Jesus. It has to be something you have to take personal ownership of. No one is born a Christian, okay? Scripture's pretty clear. We're born in our sins and trespasses and by nature children of God's wrath, Ephesians 2. No one's born in a right relationship with Jesus, which means there has to be a moment where we live out what Jesus says. If anyone wants to follow me, come uh, bear your cross, deny yourself and follow me. There has to be a point where we choose, I want to follow Jesus. And this is really important for those of us that have grown up in cultural Christianity in the Midwest and grown up going to church. My fear is there's a lot of people that have grown up going to church They could pass a Sunday school Bible trivia test. They know a lot about Jesus, but they aren't necessarily known by Jesus. There's a difference between knowing facts about what Jesus is like and knowing Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. And I think sometimes there are people that especially grew up in Wausau, Wisconsin. If you'd ask them, why do you go to church? They'd say, I don't know. This is what you do. Fish fries on Fridays. Packer games during the week and you go to church on Sunday. It's part of being in Wisconsin. It's not a good enough answer. If the answer is because, I don't know, I grew up that way and that's what I do, realize that that's not a good enough answer. We have to have a sincere and personal faith. We have to make sure that our family's faith has become our personal faith. So if you want to have a fortified faith, it begins by asking, why am I here anyway? Am I here just because it's expected of me? Am I here because I grew up that way? Or am I here because I have a real and growing relationship with Jesus and I'm going to do whatever I can to see that accelerate and grow in my spiritual life? And if it's anything other than I'm here because I want to follow Jesus, maybe evaluate your heart and say, have I really surrendered all that I am to King Jesus? Have I taken ownership of my faith? So that's our third thing. Let's go ahead and look at verse four to find a, four way, a fourth way that we can fortify our faith. In this verse, Paul reminds Timothy to fan the flame of his spiritual life. Let's think of this idea this way. We need to stoke the fire. Stoke the fire. Apparently, Paul's looking at Timothy's life. He says, I'm concerned. 
I'm concerned because once what, what was once a raging spiritual fire has kind of dwindled into smoldering coals. He says, I'm afraid if you don't tend to that fire, it's going to burn out. And I don't want to see that happen in your life, Timothy. So Paul says, you got you to tend to the fire. You got to stoke the fire. You got to add some logs onto the fire of your spiritual life. And I like that word picture because it's, it, it's so relatable. How many of us are looking forward to fire pits in the backyard in just a month or two? Yeah, like we're excited for that, right? And let's say you build this perfect fire, 5 p.m. You have people coming over later on. But what happens if you don't do anything with that fire the rest of the night? What happens by the time people come over at 8 p.m.? Do you have a fire anymore? No. What do you have? You have a heap of hot coals. That's all you have. Because fires, you have to stoke. Fires, you have to add fresh wood or otherwise they will burn out. Okay. And Paul is saying, I don't want a picture for your spiritual life being a candle. Once a candle burns out and gets to the bottom, you, you can stoke that burnt little wick all you want. It's not going to catch on fire again, right? A candle isn't one our spiritual. We want a fire that we are tending and adding fresh fuel to so it never goes out. So Paul is saying, Timothy, you need to tend to the fire in your spiritual life. To have a resilient faith, we have to stoke that fire as well. And here's my point. We cannot rely on the passion of our past to continue propelling our growth in the future. Or just say that more simply, yesterday's victories don't win today's battles. Yesterday's victories don't win today's battles. Because we can all think of times when we were on fire for Jesus, or it felt like we were on fire in our spiritual lives. Maybe it was the day you gave your life to Christ. Maybe looking back, it was when you were plugged into a really good small group at Crew during your college years. Maybe it was a mission trip. Maybe it was after no regrets or the if gathering. Maybe it was looking back fondly at summer camps from when you were younger. We can all think of a time when we felt like we were on fire spiritually. But what happened in the weeks, months, and years afterwards? A lot of the time, the fires begin to fade. And why is that? Well, it's because we stopped stoking the fire. We stopped tending to that spiritual fire and we let it eventually die out. You can't rely on once a decade or once a year big spiritual events to keep reigniting your passion for Jesus. Okay? If you're letting a year's worth of bad decisions and lack of sanctification build up to only try to deal with it once a year at no regrets or if gathering, you're not doing your spiritual life the right way, okay? We can't rely on big rock events to propel us and then do nothing in between the propellants. Stoking the fire is a daily decision. It's a daily decision of seeing that fire kindled in our spirits. And what are some of the ways that we kindle that fire? Nothing's going to be newer or groundbreaking here. You're going to hear me hit the same old drum of things we need to do to stoke that fire. But realize I'm going to keep hitting that drum because a lot of us just don't do them. Okay? So if we actually did these things, I think we'd be a lot more passionate and engaged in our spiritual life. So what are some of those things we need to do? First is just we need to have a discipline of quiet time in our lives. We need to spend time with Jesus. You can't have a growing relationship if you're not talking to God, that's through prayer. If you're not listening to God, that's through his word. We have to have a built-in quiet time where we are being disciplined to have that relationship with the Lord. Not only that, maybe another way we can stoke the fire is meeting up with a spiritual mentor. We all need disciples in our lives. 
I don't care if you're two or 92, you need a discipler. We never outgrow our need for someone pouring into us spiritually. Everyone needs a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy. We need a Paul pouring into us. We need a Barnabas friend. We need a Timothy we're investing in. Three relationships we all need. Or maybe stoking the fire might be joining a life group here at Highland. Maybe that's a way to grow some strong friendships. Maybe you've been attending Highland for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and you come once a month, but you've never gone deeper. Realize that's not our vision for you. If you call Highland your home church, we want you worshiping. We want you plugged into a life group so you're growing strong friendships, and we want you serving. Not because that's what we desire, but because that's God's blueprints for spiritual growth. Maybe it's developing strong friendships and saying, you know what, it's scary. It's going to take vulnerability, but I want to join a life group. I want to join a small group. Maybe it's finding a way to use your spiritual gifts and serve. Jesus tells us it's, there's a blessing that comes through giving rather than receiving. If you're a Christ follower, you have a spiritual gift. And it's not a trophy Jesus gave you to put up in a curio cabinet to be displayed to gaze at. It's a gift that's to be used for the edification and the building up of the body. And if you're not using that gift, our body is missing out. Uh, everyone knows that when you wake up in the morning, you're not going to be able to run a 5K if your leg fell asleep during night, right? It's not a fun feeling. You're gonna, it's not good to have that, that numb feeling. You've got to get your feeling back before you can use that leg. Realize if you have a spiritual gift you're not using, you, you're numbing a piece of the body of Christ. Even if it's just a little toe, a numb, a numb little toe is still, still annoying, right? We want, we want feeling of all of our body to be functioning properly. Or maybe, here's our last way that we could stoke the fire. Maybe it's just preparing our hearts before we come to worship Jesus on Sunday mornings. Maybe sometimes, now, I'm sure no one here is ever guilty of this, but maybe, maybe, there's been a person who's walked away from a Sunday morning and said, I didn't get anything out of that. Now, I know none of us have ever felt that way, but let's just pretend and say that happens, right? I wonder sometimes if the reason we don't get anything out of a worship service is because we haven't prepared the soil of our heart to receive anything. How many times do we pray before we come and say, God, speak to me. God, convict me. God, help me to be ready. I want to worship. I want to just put aside the... How many of us just show up, arms crossed, sitting there and say, okay, God, what do you got for me today? right? If we do that, we probably, we probably can't expect to get a lot out of our worship time with the Lord. Maybe part of it is just tending to the soil of our hearts. So as we stoke the fire of our spiritual life, as we do all of these things, it's exciting, but at the same time, it can be scary. Because when we see what it takes to have a fortified faith, we think, I don't know if I can do that. And the good news is you can't, you can't, which is why God doesn't ask you to do it on your own. That's why we end with verse 7. In verse 7, Paul reminds Timothy he can be resilient because God is the one empowering his growth and obedience. Our fifth way to fortify our faith is this way. You need to rely on your ally. Paul reminds Timothy, when you became a Christ follower, God did not give you a spirit of cowardice or fear. God gave you a spirit, the Holy Spirit, and with that, the Holy Spirit will produce power and love and self-control in your life. You have an ally. And I love how encouraging this verse and these promises are. Because when I look at the path of discipleship sometimes, it can seem insurmountable. When I look in the mirror and see the shortcomings and sins of Andrew, when I see the challenges God is calling us to face with courage, and when I see the ways that he's calling us to sacrificially love other people, I feel I can't do it, right? 
And the reality is on my own power, I can't. It's okay to feel inadequate. But when I, when I get discouraged and feel like I can't have this fortified faith, it's because I'm spending too much time looking at my inadequacy and not enough time looking at God's sufficiency. Because God knew that we couldn't do it on our own, which is why Jesus died for us to create a way. And not only that, that's why Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to come and indwell us. He gave us the Spirit who will enable us to put these things into practice. We're not doing it on our own. God is saying, yeah, in sanctification, I've got a renovation project for your life, but the reality is the Holy Spirit is going to be the designer. He's going to be the architect. He's going to be the foreman. He's going to be the person who buys the supplies lays out the blueprints, gives you advice on how to do it. All you have to do is be faithful to pick up the hammer. And we recognize that it becomes a lot more encouraging, exciting to realizing we can pursue this together because God will never call us to something he won't equip us to fulfill. Okay? And once again, that's not through our own strength. It's through the strength that he provides us, which is why it's so important that we're keeping in step with the Spirit. And the way that we keep in step with the Spirit is all the things that we've been talking about today, opening our lives up for God to work in us. Realize that Christianity is not a religion of self-help. We're not here so I can give you points on how to polish yourself up a little. We're not here so we can strategize on how to glean a moral principle from scripture that we can apply to our lives for the week. I mean, we do wanna do those things, but that's not, that's not the point. The point is for us to have a growing and deepening and intimate relationship with King Jesus. And as we're looking upon Jesus, the Spirit can work in our hearts to transform us into the likeness of Christ, right? That's how we have a resilient faith. So what are the areas where you're trying to follow Jesus through your own strength instead of relying on the strength of the Spirit? Where are the areas where we need to humbly admit, I can't do it, I need God's help. I need the Spirit to empower my, my faithfulness. So as we close out our lesson this morning, I want to review what we've covered. We need to be prepared because the storms of life will hit. It might be a pop-up shower. It might be a Category 5 hurricane. I don't know what's going to hit. I don't know when it's going to hit, but they're going to hit. And we have to be prepared for those storms. And the only way that we're going to be prepared is to have a fortified faith. And one of the ways that we do that, or five of the ways we do that, rather, is by keeping a clear conscience, developing strong friendships, owning our faith, stoking the fire, relying on our ally. Maybe be faithful to do those things this week. Let's pray. Father, we are incredibly grateful that you are with us in the storms of life, that we can have a faith that can endure for a lifetime because what you have began in us, you will see through until completion on the day of the Lord. So Father, I just pray for each and every one of us I don't know what storms we have faced, are facing, or will face, but I ask that you empower us through the work of the Spirit in our lives to be able to be resilient and stand strong in those storms. If there's anybody today who hasn't taken ownership of their faith, I pray that today might be the day where they turn to you in faith, turning away from their sin, and understand what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Thank you for this time we've gathered together. And just be honored and glorified by our final words of worship. In Jesus' name, amen.